Welcome to Point Two Law Review. I'm John Brandt. And I'm Carson Messersmith. And we are here. It is the week of June 27th, 2023 to June 30th, 2023. We're going to be talking about the Nebraska Supreme Court opinions and Nebraska Appellate Court, the Nebraska Court of Appeals ugh, decisions uh, for this week. Again, it's a Friday. It is a Friday. There's a few. It's a Friday before a holiday weekend, right? I'm yeah. Kinda... Yeah. We're already checked out. I mean... But we're here for you guys. <laughs> My heart is not at this table. <laughs> My heart is somewhere else. Bevy in hand. Uh, Firecracker. M80. Are those legal in Nebraska yet? Can I... No. I, I, I don't think that's ever coming back. M60? M60s, no. M something? M40s? Where were you? How does it... Yeah. What's, what's the metric for No, I think uh, it's got... I think you got to go up. Like, I think you can get, like, M1000s, maybe, in Nebraska. When you were growing up, did you ever have a wayward, uh, maybe, Boy Scout or future Eagle Scout uh, take whistling peats and wrap them oh, in yes. tape? And Duct tape, yep. Yeah, cl- yeah. It, that was great. Don't do that. Ill-advised. No. Yeah, very ill-advised. Somebody... Um, had at least a story I wasn't part of it about blowing a toilet like off the wall doing that which I think I could absolutely see if you had it in a confined space that would be a oh that uh, you know what that is that's encouragement I think the 4th of July is a good holiday for parents because it is when you're reminded you know maybe we don't have kid number four maybe we stop at three well I mean you're gonna have to get the finger somewhere from somewhere (laughs) that's true all right, here we go. Let's see. Uh, ex parte summary. Uh, what do you got for Nebraska Supreme Court? Uh, NRA guardianship and conservatorship of Maronica equity jurisdiction. BCL properties v. Shauna Boyle. This is construction lien attorney fees, not automatic. State versus Boone authority to withdraw plea. And that's it for the Nebraska Supreme Court. Let's go ahead and get started with the uh, actual Supreme Court opinion. Go ahead, Carson. All right. So we start off with NRA guardianship and conservatorship of Maronica. In this case, the big issue is that there was a car accident where Maronica was severely injured in a vehicle driven by her cousin that collided with a school bus. And apparently it was a pretty terrible accident. And allegedly the school bus pulled out in front of the cousin, but the uh, cousin driver was also contributorily negligent. They don't get into a ton of the facts about why, and I actually think some of the cases are still pending, and so they probably don't have the complete facts fleshed out, and they did, this was not as a, of, this case was not a result of any kind of trial or anything. So as far as the facts, the underlying uh, issue, we don't get a ton there. But basically what happens here is that the mother of Veronica is appointed as the conservator, and the mother applies for leave to settle a claim against the cousin for $250,000. And this happens in 2017. The county court authorizes the settlement in 2017 and says, yes, okay, you can settle this and put whatever money's left over into a fund and, and steward this for Veronica. And here... The big issue happens when father is appointed as conservator in 2021 and at that point in time files a motion to rescind the settlement. And the reason that dad does this is because apparently there's outstanding claims against the uh, school and maybe against the county. So there's other uh, tort feasors that are still outstanding. And so father wants to have this um, the settlement rescinded and the county court denies that. And the big issue here 
And uh, ironically enough, actually, there wasn't a bill of exceptions on this case. Hmm. And so they have to do this case without a bill of exceptions. But because it ends up being procedural, they can do that. I don't know that I've seen that very many times, but no. no bill of exceptions, and they still are able to find an answer to this case. So county court denies, and the Supreme Court here addresses whether or not they, the county court even had jurisdiction to deny this motion to rescind. And what they find is that the county court has jurisdiction over all matters relating to conservatorship of a person. However, they are not empowered to use the conservatorship proceedings to grant equitable relief unrelated to the conservatorship. And basically what they're saying here is that this is asking for equitable relief, equitable or, or any action in equity for the county courts is limited to areas where the statutes have explicitly said this is a county court jurisdiction. This is exclusive county court jurisdiction. And here, the fact that the conservator is involved in another lawsuit does not make the matter statutorily related to a conservatorship and so the county court lacked subject matter jurisdiction to even address the motion to vacate and rescind the contract of the settlement basically just because dad gets appointed um, as a conservator later you can't now go back into this other action that was exclusively taken care of by the county court and ask for an equitable remedy of rescission of this uh, settlement agreement or this contract and so therefore the remedy is vacating the order that the county court put in denying this motion and then dismissing the appeal so some good discussion in there about uh, jurisdiction of county courts and that goofy world of actions in equity and in law which again is kind of a law school uh, you know theory but here we address kind of where the equity jurisdiction of county courts lies and and the supreme court talks about uh, you know, quite a bit where that exclusive equity jurisdiction is and those exclusive uh, equity remedies. Ponds of equity. Yeah. So, like, not not lakes. Not lakes. Ponds. Ponds. Okay. Um, I've got uh, BCL Properties versus Shauna Boyle. This is a uh, residential construction matter where the homeowner, uh, Ms. Boyle, uh, hired BCL Properties as general contractor for the residential construction of the home. Uh, and then a tale as old as time, the contract was uh, basically decided on how much it was going to be. And then the homeowner started changing things. And then the uh, contractor says, well, if you want to make all these changes, it's going to cost more money. That escalated to a point where the um, general contractor ceased work because they were not getting paid, uh, apparently. And because they weren't getting paid, they filed a construction lien on the property. And uh, they made a number of other claims besides the construction lien. There were some contract um, claims that were made and that the contract claims were decided by a jury and the construction lien was decided by the court. They did them both at the same time. The uh, issues here on appeal were basically the, uh, whether there was a construction lien and the prejudgment interest in attorney's fees that were issued. As far as the specific assignments of error, there was one regarding proposed exhibits. This has some kind of uh, evidentiary value here. So there's proposed exhibits that were kind of detailed numbers on the money and how those were going to work and maybe some of the changes that were made and how much they were going to cost. So those were detailed numbers that uh, were in Excel spreadsheets, I think, or something like that, some kind of spreadsheets that they were trying to offer. And basically before the jury comes in, which is obviously good procedure is like, Hey, your honor, we have some exhibits. We're going to offer these. We're thinking about offer these. I want to let you want to see if we can get a ruling before that doesn't ever call it a motion in limine. 
but that's what it's construed as here uh, in the Nebraska Supreme Court. So the court says, I'm not going to let those in. The witness can testify to them, but they're confusing. So we don't want the jury to get a hold of those. Now, that was a preliminary ruling without the jury present. The uh, offering party here did not offer those, never offered them again, and therefore that was not preserved. Um, and then the court had discretion to decide whether to uh, admit those or not, and they didn't abuse that discretion. So uh, because it was, that uh, issue was never preserved, it can't be found on appeal. There was also a jury question once the case was submitted to the jury, the jury sends a question to the court and says, well, how do we calculate damages if we do find for the contractor? How are we going to figure that out? Now, before the court could respond, and the court uh, seemingly on the record said, what we're going to do is we're going to direct you to the jury instructions. Before we can, uh, before they could do that, before they could issue a response, the verdict was reached by the jury, and the court accepted the verdict. Now, the uh, appellate court here says, whether to respond to a jury question is always within the discretion of the uh, trial court. And the whether to respond at all is in the discretion of the trial court. So while initially the trial court here wanted to respond, um, they, after they received the verdict, maybe they found the jury instruction that they needed. I don't know. But uh, then there was no timely objection following that after the court accepted the jury verdict. So the, that also wasn't preserved. Now we get to prejudgment interest, which is apparently a theme for me today um, as far as the cases that I have. Prejudgment interest, uh, any instrument in writing here, you get 12% annual interest uh, for prejudgment uh, if it's not otherwise stated. And that's the issue here. And they had to construe whether um, this was an instrument in writing. Apparently uh, the uh, homeowner here argued that the uh, agreement that she had with the general contractor was an instrument in writing. Uh, the Supreme Court here is pretty uh, blunt in saying, yes, of course, it's an instrument in writing. Uh, we find that. Now, here we get to the meat of this case, the attorney's fees. The attorney's fees here were around $115,000 in attorney's fees on this construction clean case. And the amount, I think, of the judgment was 190 something or something like that. So the attorney's fees is more than 50% of the judgment that was awarded. And the trial court ordered the attorney's fees uh, to be paid based on the construction lien statute that says the court may. Um, and those were all issued before this Echo Group case came down from the Nebraska Supreme Court. Now, when Echo Group came down, it said it's not automatic uh, to give attorney's fees in construction lien cases. Um, it, there has to be something more. You have to show that uh, not only was some, it, the wrongfully deprived portion of that uh, statute, it requires something more than just before um, just a foreclosure. You got to have bad faith um, or something like that because once you get that construction lien judgment, you're receiving all the benefits you thought you were going to get. So the Nebraska Supreme Court here vacates the $115,000 attorney fee award. Yikes. Uh, and there you go. But the, otherwise, they affirm, and, and they just modify it a little bit by getting rid of the wow. $115,000 of attorney's fees. That's kind of dropping on a big note. <laughs> I mean... Can I just say quickly, too, that is always one of the most difficult things, I think, in trial practice is remembering to reintroduce the exhibit after a judge because it's like that guy well okay the person who just said nope <laughs> no. i'm not letting that in 10 seconds later you know hey, the jury I, comes in what about now would you like to take it now <laughs> have you changed your mind 
Have well, I changed your mind? Well, one of the first cases we had, the court changed their mind after sleeping on it. And the whole thing was, well, let's try it again the next day. Yeah. Well, I mean, why not just throw it out there and, and see if it sticks this time? You got to be persistent, I guess, is the... Uh, what you try try do. again try try again there you go all right so we go to state v boone uh this is a uh coming from an appeal where boone had tried to withdraw his uh, plea with the district court and the big crux of the issue on appeal is if the district court had authority to allow boone to withdraw his uh pleas and if the uh, district court was the proper authority here and the supreme court goes through addressing essentially uh, what the procedure for withdrawing a plea is and where it exists. They talk about the fact that uh, Boone does not cite any statutory authority for his uh, motion to withdraw his pleas before um, the district court after the period of sentencing. And the Supreme Court here says that they're also not aware of any other statute that permits that. But here, the defendant is also arguing that a he uh, may be able to withdraw a guilty or no contest plea after sentencing upon a um, demonstration of a manifest of injustice, which comes from uh, ABA guidance. And the Supreme Court pushes back on that. And here they talk about the fact that this is allowed in very narrow circumstances. So allowing a withdrawal of a plea after sentencing has been pronounced from the district court as a common law procedure, but that, the, but that it is only available in a very narrow ground, which we've talked about in other cases where one, the post-conviction act is not and never was available as a means of asserting the ground or grounds justifying the withdrawing of the plea. And two, a constitutional right is at issue. And so here, um, even though the motion to withdraw may be uh, seeking a constitutional right from uh, Boone in this case, there were other statutorily authorized procedures that were available in order to make that happen. And so having a common law withdrawal in front of the district court was not the appropriate uh, place to have that. And so here, since there were other statutorily authorized procedures to Boone in order to assert the claim that uh, counsel was ineffective by advising him to take the plea deal and then trying to get the plea withdrawn. Uh, the district court here uh, lacked the authority to allow him to withdraw his pleas to begin with, and therefore the Supreme Court lacked the authority uh, to address that, and so they affirmed. Okay, that's it for the Nebraska Supreme Court. I think I think we got the Court of Appeals. Is that right? Yeah, I believe so. All right, go ahead. All right, so we jet straight over to the Court of Appeals, and the first case we have is State versus Miller. And here, Miller is appealing from his plea-based convictions with uh, two things, um, trial or ineffective assistance of trial counsel and excessive sentence. And here, trial counsel, uh, he's arguing, was ineffective for failing to depose an individual uh, for the fact that he was saying that um, he was promised a particular sentence, which here the record is insufficient for that, failure to review the PSI, failure to correct and add information to the PSI. And here they talk about how uh, some of these things, the, the record isn't clear. You know, a lot of the, th the conversations between the client, those things don't exist in the record. But then also that the PSI addressed most of the things that Miller was saying that he wanted to be talked about, mental health and concerns like that. Um, and then the excessive sentence, all of the sentencing were, were within the statutory range, and the uh, court considered the appropriate factors, and so therefore it was affirmed. 30 Metropolitan Place v. Dana Partnership. Now, um, 
if you're going to read this case appropriately, um, you got to do a map because there are probably at least more than half a dozen entities involved in this commercial lease uh, operation and contract. So it's a mess. And there were the one of the questions here was or one of the uh, exhibits that was offered was number 312 and i just thought uh wow <laughs> oh, how do you get to that point that does not sound fun um so anyway so 312 was one of the exhibits i think they were offering but this is a commercial lease contract there's several entities here uh they had a trial on uh somebody whether they breached the lease and owed the um landowner or the property manager money based on this uh, master lease agreement that they had and the district court found in favor of the uh, landlord and said that uh, you the entities underneath them who did not pay <clears throat> excuse me they um, were not credible um, they were contradicted several times they acted like they didn't know things and basically just made a huge judgment that I don't believe these people they also said that there was a standing to for them to assert those and they went into some property uh, or excuse me promissory estoppel and equitable estoppel claims and then we have uh, they made a judgment interest date calculation and a judgment interest calculation based on that statute I referenced earlier which is that 12% per, per year if um, you know unless otherwise agreed that's 45-104 so Here's what we have. Um, the appellate court here, the Court of Appeals said, we're not in a position to judge the credibility of people um, as far as the what was observed at trial. We're gonna rely on the district court to do that in their sound discretion unless it's there's some kind of abuse of that. And here they kind of went on to say, well, the record kind of shows that they're not really credible. We can kind of sniff out that they're not credible within the record. So that part where you're claiming on appeal that how dare you say I'm not credible, uh, the Court of Appeals is like, well, it's in the record. Um, we, we completely find that you're not credible um, and affirm the district court on that regard. There was also the issue of standing raised and saying that there was no uh, contract privity with this other entity because there were some side deals as far as who's going to get 10% of this company and they paid for this, but they didn't want to put reduce it to writing because they didn't want the banks to snuff it out because they were going to do a closing in 10 days. All kinds of jazz there. And then there's some good law chunks here. If you have anything that might involve promissory estoppel, equitable estoppel, or judgment interest date calculation, um, take a look at this case because there's some really good law chunks on what's necessary in order to prove uh, promissory estoppel, estoppel, equitable estoppel, and then trying to figure out what the judgment interest date calculation here. Um, generally, the district court is affirmed but they are it's modified here because um it is they're going to find out the date of the calculation it's 30 days after the notice of default by the terms of the master lease agreement it had nothing to do with uh, you know the date of the actual uh, breach or the date they stopped paying it had to do with the notice of default and it's pretty narrow here because they there was an agreement that everybody kind of agreed to is well you can you can be here for three or four months before we start charging you rent so that is a little different there so the prejudgment interest date of calculation is modified a little bit which modifies the judgment interest now this is another unique thing that the district court here did um did here is the tenant withheld some funds and, and invested it i guess in a mutual of omaha account and the district court said, well, you got to give them that mutual of, uh, Omaha account, and I'm ordering you to transfer that to them, despite what it went up. It went up 
uh, it made some money on it. So you got to give all that and that's going to go against the judgment. Now, none of that was specifically pled. No party said, Hey, um, we, there's this mutual of Omaha account that has this money that's owed to us. Nobody said that, but the, uh, court of appeals here says that uh, even though it wasn't specifically pled, it was fully litigated. So we can talk about it and it was fully litigated here. And in this narrow instance, uh, we specifically find that the district court did not err by ordering that mutual of Omaha account to be transferred towards this judgment. So again, kind of what you were talking about as far as the equitable stuff, uh, ordering, you know, um, people to give property or, or funds to somebody else to account for a judgment seems a little uh, squirrely, but here it, uh, is affirmed because of this narrow scope of, um, having it being fully litigated. So that's it. Okay. Uh, next case we come to is in Ray, the interest of Charlie W. Uh, this is an appeal from a termination of parental rights. Uh, the big issue here was that uh, father had basically failed to comply with various aspects of the case plan, uh, namely uh, sobriety, uh, courses that were supposed to be taken, and, and things of that nature. The termination grounds were based on uh, being on in out-of-home placement for 15 out of the most recent 22 months. And then the best interests were dealt with because of uh, father being able, unable to address his, address his sobriety and uh, meet the standards in order to be able to take care of his kids and provide a uh, suitable living and housing environment. And so, therefore, the uh, juvenile court was affirmed. Hey, that was it. Um, I think that's it for this week, right? I think we're done. Hey, fantastic. So um, what about cherry bombs? Are cherry bombs illegal? Yeah, I think so. I haven't seen a cherry bomb in a while. Do you have any? No, but I should oh. have played cherry bomb. Uh, yeah, we should have played a 4th of July thematic. I wasn't thinking. Yeah, we kind of failed here. We did. My bad. So, dog days of summer, Mr. Brand. I have a yes. question oh, for yeah, you. Oh, yeah, let's do it. So, what is... We've talked about bevies on this pod. What is the best bevy? I was thinking about this the other day. So, you have like... You have an airport bevy, which you can drink any time of the day. I think that's the neat part about yeah, an airport it's, bevy. It's 7 a.m. 7 a.m., yeah. go have a bevy. You have a sporting event bevy, so again, very spendy. You have the uh, classic post-mowing yard work bevy, a shower bevy, uh, which is also... I, I, mean, I don't a, think I've ever had a shower bevy. I You need to have a, a shower bevy. <laughs> After a long, hard day at the office, uh, have a shower. So what is the best? What's what's the best bevy? Okay. Uh, I, I can rank two of those because okay. those come out in my mind. Number one is uh, after you mow the lawn bevy. And number two is at a professional baseball game with your bros. You got all afternoon, nothing to do. And uh, it's a nice, nice day, nice summer day. Tap beer. Yeah, plastic cup. It doesn't really matter at that point. That's just a good beer. Just, yeah, I mean, I even drink, if it's nine dollars, it tastes I, great. I willfully drank a Coors Light at Coors Field for a Rockies game one time under those circumstances of my own volition. <laughs> you will choose. I will willingly choose to drink the superior <laughs> oh, domestic beer. This was before the mountains were blue or gray or any whatever. of that. It I was couldn't just... even tell if it was cold because the mountains weren't blue. Oh, <laughs> well, that's true. You All just right. had to identify the old-fashioned way. Yeah, what's your number um, one? Yeah, I think airport beer, honestly. Really? I think it's the only time where like a $12 beer feels good, like you do it willingly. Well, and not to get two, but I mean, 
Here's all those nerves of, you know, the the, the hecticness of you getting gotta on a plane. Yourself. You gotta settle yourself. Yeah. You gotta say, okay, it's a zen moment. There's things about planes and airports, and again, we're going too far into this, but that's also the only place where I'll drink a ginger ale, is on a plane. Really? So they're coming by, and it's like, you know, what kind of soda do you want? And it's like, oh, I'll take a ginger ale. It's uh, No other time in my life have I bought ginger ale, do I, but I drink ginger ale on planes. No idea why. Is it, well, is it because someone, when you were younger, they were like, well, you can't have... Because that's what I was told. I was told you had to have Sprite, because you can't have, like, the dark or sodas, oh. or it'll upset your tummy warmth. Okay, <laughs> so you gotta have something. You gotta have something a little lighter. Maybe something a little it. lighter. Maybe I don't know. It, that to this makes day, sense to me. Get on that airplane, airplane, drink that ginger ale. Okay, I have another one that you haven't experienced yet. This is getting three kids through an airport on an airplane, and then having a Michelob Ultra waiting for you when you get on the plane. That's a pretty good one too. Yeah, that would make me drink on the plane. <laughs> I don't care what that costs. It's like, that's a that's yeah. a reward one. Exactly. Anyway, that's it for uh, Point Two Law Review for this week. Go back to episode one to listen to the disclaimer. This is brought to you by Anderson, Klein, Brewster, and Brand offices in Kearney, Holdridge, and Minden. Uh, Have a great, safe holiday, everybody. Enjoy America. Enjoy freedom. 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 That's what we're all about. That's how we're leaving on freedom. Freedom. And who are you, sir? Oh, sorry. I'm John Brand. And I'm Carson Messersmith. Take care, everybody.